All right, good morning. Good to see everybody here at our main campus. Thanks for you guys that are joining us online. So just real quick, two quick announcements before we get started. So one, uh, you've probably seen them on the signs out in the cafe or even as you walk out of here, Discover Life's Uh, We're having it this Thursday, Um, so it's two Thursdays in a row. Um, And again, Discover Life is, if you've been coming here uh, and checking out Life Church and you want to know what we're about on a deeper level and what our foundational beliefs are, Discover Life is a great time to come and and get that and understand that. It's also a great time for you to get to know more people at the church. You know, you have two services, and a lot of times you don't know a lot of people on a personal level. So from a relationship side, it gives you the opportunity to get to know new people. So you can sign up, go on our app, go online, uh, see Jennifer, whatever you need to do. You still have time to sign up for that. The other thing is Ignite Weekend for youth. It's coming up, uh, but today's the last day to be able to sign up. For that. So if you have kids uh, that you still want to get involved, you can go on our website, sign up there, or if you go at the table, Tyler and Caitlin will be out there at the table, there's a QR code that you can scan, um, and once you sign or, or scan that QR code, it takes you to the link where you can sign up online. If you can't get any of those things figured out, don't miss the, the weekend because you can't figure out how to get uh, stuff signed up. Just see Tyler and Caitlin, and they'll get you uh, what you need to be able to do from there. And as a church, this is really important, so as a church... Um, even if you don't have kids involved, you know, we want to be praying for that weekend and we want to do everything that we can uh, to support our youth ministry and the kids and the leaders that are going to be, you know, really praying for a movement of God to happen, you know, on that weekend. And so we as a church put that date in your calendar. Uh, Again, ask youth leaders if there's any way you can help or support, but be continually praying for what that weekend looks like. All right, so we're in a series, uh, Revelation. So if you're new or you're just joining us online, you can go ahead and uh, turn to Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation 2 today. Um, but just so everybody gets, it's kind of a building foundation, right? So we're going to look at the seven letters, but it's important to understand a few things about what we're reading uh, to be able to really get a foundation so you can understand the seven letters so that you can also understand why would we read the book of Revelation, why is it important, and why and how should we interact with it. So Week one, um, we learned a few things that are somewhat foundational, right? Not somewhat, they are foundational. So week one was this, is that John was exiled on the island of Patmos. While he was exiled there, an angel came to him and said, I want you to show you a vision. And in this vision, a couple things were going to happen, which is important of how do you interact with the book of Revelation. I'm going to show you some warnings, like these are some things that you're doing wrong, and these are some things that aren't going the way that they're supposed to go. And I'm going to show you, which had never been seen before, that if you're on the wrong side of the the boat when it comes to these things, this is how it all plays out in the end, right? So revelation is, is like, here's the way that I want you to be going, and if, and I want to warn you against it, and I want to give you a chance to get it right, but if you don't get it right, and you read the rest of the book of Revelations, for people that don't get it right, there's a real reality, right, that sometimes you don't want to look at, and you don't want to see, but it's true, right, so Revelation, for a lot of people, is a hard book to read, not only because it brings confusion, you know, to some people, because they read it, and they don't know how to understand imagery, but the reason that, other reason that it's hard to read is because it honestly brings clarity. That's why they call it the book of Revelation, is to reveal clearly what's going on. And I've always said, you know, part of the problem in the Christian church is you really don't know, want to know what it has to say. You know what I mean? So when it really is revealed and it's confronting, you're sitting back there saying, 
crap is way easier to just listen to the preacher who never talks about the hard stuff. Because when I read this and it says, like, this is the deal, because this is what he said, Revelation 1. Really easy. If you want me to be present in your life and in your church, then you need to be with me. Do these things. Obey the commands that I have, right? You need to do this stuff. If you don't, right, like if you don't do these things, then I'm just going to remove myself. And I think for a lot of people, that's a hard concept. Right, the concept of he's saying to the church in general, like, I'm going to bless you, you know, when you're reading and trying to understand and going down this road. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. In fact, my presence, this is what he would say, you know, inside the book of Revelation, and we see this throughout all of the history of Scripture. When he's involved, things that we thought could never be fixed get fixed. People that were broken forever get healed. Right? When the presence of Jesus is in a place, things change. Right, And so there can be nothing more important for us as Christian people other than the presence of Jesus. Right? It's not about your preachers. It's not about your worship leaders. It's not about any of those things. It's about the presence of Jesus Christ being in this room. And the presence of Jesus Christ being in your life because he heals things that you've been trying to fix forever. And he can do it in one moment in your life, right? That's, that's what we're saying, and that's what we're talking about. But he also says, you can keep existing like this, like you can gather, and you can, you can be in a church, like you can do all of these things, and you can do religious activity, but if it's not in line with who he is or what he says in the book of Revelation, he's not going to be there. That's just what he says. I'm going to remove my lampstand. I'm going to remove my presence. And so we said from the beginning, we want to be a church that's all about the presence of God, so we're going to err on the side of doing whatever he says. We're going to err on the side of trying to be obedient because we want him to be here because we know he's the only one who changes things. So he lays that foundation in the beginning and essentially gives us a warning that says, like, if you don't do this, and I think this is the hardest part for people to understand, if you don't do this, he draws a line in the sand, right, which very seldom do we want somebody to do. You need to pick your team. You're not, you need to decide which side of the line you're on, right? And I'm going to be very clear with you. This is the line, and here's what determines which side of the line you're on, right? And so he lays that foundation. In fact, he says in the church in Ephesus, which was our second week, he says, here's the deal. You were doing all these things right in the beginning, but 40 years later, you've lost what matters most. And if you don't fix it, you're going to lose this relationship, essentially what he says, right? And we talked about this whole idea. Like he's saying, you know, you've lost your first love. Like you're just going through the activity. You don't even love me anymore. I'm not a priority. You have divided loyalties. And because you have these divided loyalties, I'm no longer uh, at a place where I'm number one. But you know what the coolest thing is? This is what I love about Scripture. So if you're still breathing today, you get a chance to turn it around. You know, the problem inside of the church is we keep hearing, hearing things, because this is what he says. You know what I'm tired of hearing? Maybe the same thing your wife's tired of hearing. I'm sorry and doing nothing about it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sorry I did, and I'm sorry I wasn't, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But then the next day, or maybe actually if you're good, it takes five days to go back. You know, I'm saying some of us are better than others. We could go 10 days being good, and then we just revert back. Some of the rest of it only takes a day. You know what I mean? But, you know, but I'm sorry, but nothing changes. 
You know, so he says to the church in Ephesus, it's not just about forgiveness, but it's about repentance. Repentance says, like, I'm sorry, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm sorry, so I'm going to change my relationship with you so that you're number one, and I'm going to prove it to you through the actions of my life. And I'm going to show you that you are my first love. But he just tells him, I'm just going to be flat out honest with you. He just says, like, but if I'm not, if I'm not, there are going to be people who think that they're in a relationship with me and someday are going to wake up and know that I'm not there. And the warning for all of us is, understand these things before it's too late. Right? That's the book of Revelations, right? Know and understand the warning before it becomes too late because while you still have breath in this room today, you get a chance to make a difference. You get a chance to be on the right side. You get a chance to understand what God wants to do in your life, which leads us to what we're going to talk about today. So Revelations 2, and it's going to be verses 8 through 11, and this is a letter to the persecuted church, right? So it's talking about, in, in other letters, it's this is what you did right, this is what you did wrong, I'm going to help you correct it. In this one, it's nothing about what they did wrong, but it opens up a window that I don't think a lot of times that we want to talk about, and that is, is how do we as Christian people handle persecution? How do we as Christian people handle suffering? And, and if you are not suffering, and if you aren't experiencing persecution, is there a problem? Right? Is there a problem that you're living inside of a world, that you're living inside of a bubble where you've never experienced suffering, you've never experienced persecution? Maybe, just maybe, there's a reason, and the reason isn't good. Because just so we know from the beginning, Jesus said this very clearly. If you live for me, you will be hated, not disliked, not people annoyed by you. You will be hated by the world. If you put your loyalties with me, you will live in a divided world. There's only two teams, and you got to decide which one, Satan or Jesus, and there will be constant fighting and division. Right? Like you got to decide those things. And so it is that maybe we're not persecuted because, you know, we're not really taking a stand for anything. But we'll get into that and look at what that looks like. So here's what we're going to do. Revelations 2, 8 through 11. 8 through 11. I'm going to read all the way through it. After we read all the way through it, then we're going to break it down and try to understand how we, as a Christian church, and how we individually can understand this. Because remember, when you're reading the book of Revelation, you need to understand how to read the letter, or how to interpret the letter. So he writes it to a physical church. So this was actually a physical church with the idea that he was talking to the organization of the church in Smyrna, right? So the leadership, how they were organized, and everything that they did. So the letter is written to the organized church to say how you organize matters. What you stand for as a church and in leadership matters. And what he would say to the organized church here right, to all of us, to the organized church. What your leaders stand for and how your leadership organizes in life church is important and you should look at it if you're gonna be here, right? So he's saying there's organizational pieces, but then he also says individually to the church in Smyrna, for the people inside of the church, I'm talking to you too. This isn't just the organization, I'm talking to you individually, to the people in the church of Smyrna, and he would also say this, to the people inside of Life Church, I'm talking to you individually. So read it as, am I in a church 
that understands this concept and read it, is there something that God needs to do inside of me because he's speaking to me and it's not just about the big church, okay? So let's read it together. Revelations 2, starting in verse 8. Here we go. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you, uh, I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious, uh, will not be hurt by the second death. So here's what he says in context about the church in Smyrna. I'm proud of you because you picked a team and you stuck with your team, even in the midst of persecution, right? Because here's what we know, right? I think we know this society sometimes. We know this in society sometimes. I don't know that we understand it necessarily when it comes to being a Christian, if you pick your allegiance and you make it known to people, there are people that have opinion about your allegiance, right? So way back when, when I worked at Zerker's, um, I was a Bears fan, you know, and everybody else, you know, back in the day, everybody grew up Pittsburgh Steelers fans or Dallas Cowboy fans, you know, when kids were young. And then some of us got smart and walked away, <laughs> right? And, be and became real fans of real teams. Yeah, I know. I just knew some of the Cowboy fans and Pittsburgh Steelers fans were sitting in the first row. But anyway, I'm a Bears, so I become a Bears fan, right? But you still have tons of people who I'm working with that are Dallas Cowboy fans. Doesn't happen that often that the Bears and the Cowboys are going to play each other. So the Bears and the Cowboys are playing, so we decide there's like 10 of these guys and one of me. We're going to rent a motorhome. We're going to drive up to Chicago, tailgate, and go to the game. Now, if you're a Bears fan, there is a level of expectation that's, that you're going to win that's about this low, right? <laughs> so you just go into it with this whole thought of like, it's all about the experience, baby, right? Like, it's just about being at Soldier Field. It's just about hanging out with people. It's just about tailgating, you know, so you put all of your stuff on, but you're not going to win. Well, the Dallas Cowboy fans are coming to show off, right? Like, they're wearing all their garb and their hats and just everything that they could put on and whatever, because I don't really care because it's really not a competition. They're way better, you know. So anyway, go to the game. In the beginning, all these Dallas Cowboy fans walk in with this one Bear fan. We're sitting in this row. I'm in the middle of all of them. You get a few of the, like, people that in the beginning of the game before they haven't drank much beer, you know, are like, oh, those guys, and you're yelling at them a little bit. But then the game starts to go on, right? Which the beer, you know how it is, right? You're, the beer starts flowing. People get a lot more loose and excited during football games. And guess what? The Bears start winning. <laughs> so now I'm sitting in the middle, right, of all of these fans. And, you know, the Cowboy fans are whining because it's always somebody else's fault that the Bears are actually beating them, right? So all of a sudden, you start getting people that are, like, throwing stuff, you know, at them. And I'm like, this is perfect. So I went out at halftime and bought an inflatable helmet, you know, big Bears inflatable helmet. And I'm like, keep throwing it, you know. I don't mind. Just, you know. And, and again, after the game's over, 
bears wind. We're walking out. You know, you go through these tunnels at Soldier Field, and there's people at this tunnel throwing beer, popcorn all over it. And I'm like, this is like heaven, you know, for a Bears fan. But the reason that I tell you that story, if you speak allegiance to something and you're passionate about it, you're going to fight against the other people. That's just the way it works, right? If you were a Bears fan and you picked your allegiance and you're passionate about it and you see a Cowboys fan or a Packers fan, nobody's sitting there like, oh man, I love you. It's all about unity and love. (laughs) If you are, you're not a Bears fan. So pick a different team, right? Does that make sense, right? So here's the church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna took a stand for Jesus. And when they took a stand for Jesus, it caused persecution and suffering for no other reason other than because of what they believed. And they drew a line in the sand to say, this is what we believe. We know that it's going to cost us something, but we're not going to change our belief. Because inside of this suffering, God's going to want to do something. And you know, I think the problem, and I just want us to be thinking about this. I think the problem in the local church just seeing organizationally what's the problem. I think the church has stopped talking about the hard stuff and the you know putting your allegiance where it needs to be because they've got so much pushback that they would rather be comfortable than suffering, right? And so they've just made it so that the environment of church is not suffering anymore, right? The environment of church and preachers is just keep everybody happy and comfortable and agreeing and on the same page and the victory inside of the church isn't that we stood on an allegiance that he says if you're in this allegiance it's going to cost you something in this allegiance there's going to be suffering in this allegiance there's going to be pushback you know have we or does the american church just say oh that's that's not good you know we got to we got to get back to where everybody accepts everything. And I do. I think it's got there. So I'm saying for an organization, the church, one of the things we need to look at is, is that suffering comes because your allegiance is where it's supposed to be. And the question for us as a church, is there no suffering because there is no allegiance? Or if there is, nobody knows. You know what I mean? Like, is it or could it be that the reason that there is no suffering against the American church is because you stand for nothing, right? Or, or you never take a stand on anything. Could it just be? And could it be for us as Christian people, because we live in America, right, where there is no suffering, there is no persecution, could it be because there is no allegiance? Could it be because there is no stands? Could it be because you aren't taking any hard lines for what you believe? And because you're taking no hard lines for what you believe, everybody loves you, right? Why would there be persecution if your only job is just to keep everybody agreeing with each other and everybody comfortable and everything? You know, because as a Christian person, we've already answered this question. If you have allegiance, will you be liked by the world? Right? Hated. So how does it make sense that Christians aren't hated in America? And I just wonder, like this is something to think about. I just wonder if it's because we don't have any allegiance other than keeping it all working. You know what I mean? Making it all go smooth. You know? And we're afraid sometimes to have an allegiance because of what it's going to cost us. Even personally. 
Right? You struggle with allegiance because it might cost you a friend. You struggle with allegiance because it might cost you a family member, right? It might cost you your whole family, right? So who really wants to rock that ship? Or who really wants to rock that boat? Well, inside of this, this is what we're seeing. And this is what the church of Smyrna helps us understand. They didn't lower their expectations of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And because of that, the church and the people inside of the church were persecuted. And we, as the church in America, have to ask ourselves this question. Are we as Christians not persecuted? And are we as a church not persecuted because our expectations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ are down here now? And it's become acceptable in culture. It's not scriptural, right? Like, we know that. We know it's not scriptural. But we have, we culturally made a church that's acceptable inside of society because that's what everybody wants. Have you became a cultural Christian, lowered your expectations of what it meant to be a believer or a follower, so that society accepts you, right, in the things that you do, where the church in Smyrna said, we're not doing that, regardless of the cost. So what can we learn as a church organizationally, and what can we learn personally? So let's go and break it back down. So Revelations 2, let's go through it and and look at what he says to each one of us. So Revelations 2, back in Verse 8, he says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, understanding what Smyrna was will help you understand a little bit of what we're going to talk about here in a second. Smyrna, like Ephesus, was a port city, and they were very wealthy and very rich because port cities had all the people coming in and out. Trading happened all the time. So lots of people were financially successful because it was a hub, right? The other thing that would have happened at the time inside of Smyrna, just like Ephesus, it was a cultural center. Right? So all these people from different places, because they would come into these ports, would be a part of Smyrna. So it was a lot of different cultures, but people loved it because of that. Back to what we said, Ephesus was like New York City, the same thing. Smyrna was a little bit like that, a melting pot of a lot of different people. But inside of that, most of the people in Smyrna, because there were jobs, because there was trade, because there were money, were wealthy people right, being a part of that. But what came with it, obviously, was a lot of different religions, right? A lot, you had Jews there, you had the Greeks there, you had the worshiping of different Greek gods. So a lot of those things were happening, and then all of a sudden, Paul comes in, he plants his church, and now you have a new belief system that goes against all of the other belief systems, right? And with that now, Smyrna or the people of Smyrna have to make a decision because the reaction to their belief was pretty harsh. So he says, these are the words of of him who is the first and the last and who died and came to life again. So in the beginning of each one of the letters, it's important to understand this. Jesus is saying this, nobody else. So don't blame anybody for your conviction other than him. Because these letters are somewhat convicting And don't play off what other people do sometimes when they read the Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but people are reading the letters of Paul, and they're like, well, it's Paul. Paul was a chauvinist, and he didn't really like women, and Paul this, and Paul that, and so I can't really believe this because Paul wrote it. You know, and I'm like, well, okay, whatever. Jesus wrote this, okay? So Jesus wrote this, so if you're feeling convicted or you're wondering what Jesus had to say, This is what he has to say. And he's pretty frank and he's pretty blunt with it. So when we look at it, understand that this is what he's saying directly to each one of us. And here's what he says in verse 9. He starts like this. 
I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. So he starts with this idea. I know your afflictions and I know your poverty. Now, I am reading into this, but I think this is pretty accurate, is that most of the people in the church of Smyrna started out as being very wealthy, right? Because they were part of a port city. They would have had a lot of businesses. We're not assuming that most of these people, and I think the commentaries would agree, that most of these people were poor, you know, and that all of the sudden, you know, they're just going to make people aware that the people of Smyrna were poor. What he's saying is, I know your afflictions, meaning this, and that you became poor, is that if you drew the line in the sand and you had a business, you lost customers, right? If you stood for Jesus and you made people aware that your business is about Jesus, those people would have either lost their business or lost money, right? If you were trading with somebody, right, and your trade was that you would go out and trade goods with somebody and you profess to be a Christian, we would assume, based upon what history would say, if you profess to be a Christian, nobody's trading with you anymore, right? If you were in a job, where you profess Christianity and people knew it, at that time, they would have said, you can no longer work here, right? So here's what we know not only about the church in Smyrna, we know about the people in Smyrna. Everybody that they were around knew where their allegiance lied. And it cost them something financially, right? Like they got to this point where it cost them something financially. Now, he also says, not only do I know your afflictions and your poverty, I also know that you are, is it still up there? Yeah, rich, right? So what does that even mean? So when he says, I know your affliction, I know your poverty, but you are rich, what is he trying to help us or help us get or understand? Well, the best way I can describe it to you is when I was in Guatemala, um, one of the things that we used to do is we'd go to impoverished neighborhoods. Um, at the time, and we'd go into these neighborhoods, and we would give out bags of beans and rice, right, or beans and something else, right, and the reason was is because as Americans, we're looking at these people that, like, they're poverty, and they're living in, you know, tin shacks, and, you know, all this stuff, you know, and we as Americans are looking at them saying, oh my gosh, those poor people, Right? And they need the Americans' help and the Americans' money and all this stuff. And so we'd go into these villages with the greatest intentions. We'd pray, God, use us when we're in these places. And so I'd go up, and we had went to a couple other places, and this is how you did it. You would go up, and you'd give them their bag, and you'd say, this is, you know, from us and, you know, the orphanage or the church or whatever we were working for at the time. And we'd say, you know, we want to know how we can pray for you. Right? thinking it would open up the door to be able to have a faith conversation. So we go down the road, we do this in a couple of places, but then we come up to this one place, people are out on the front porch or front, you know, whatever it was inside of their house. And we go up there to give them the stuff and, hey, here's your beans and here's your stuff. And, you know, I looked at them and I'm like, I just want you to know, and this is through a translator, how can we pray for you? And again, expecting the typical response that we had got from other people, she looks back at me and she says, no, how can we pray for you? I'm like, that ain't, that's not what I ask. I mean, you're getting me off script. You know what I mean? The script is, you're bad and I have your answers, right? So that's the script. The script is, you need Jesus and I'm going to give you Jesus, so follow the script. You're not supposed to ask me what I need to be prayed for so a little bit caught me off guard and so then 
after I processed a little bit, essentially I just said like, hey, you know, I don't know what that means. Why would you, and this is what I said, why would you pray for me? And through the interpreter, this is what she said back. She says, it's everything that we don't have that draws us closer to God, and it's everything that you do have that pushes you further away. So I need to pray for you. And I'm like, hmm, (laughs) preach it, right? Because isn't it true? Because what was rich for them was not monetary things, right? What was rich for them was you could take it all. But for them, it was about a relationship with Jesus at Christ and nothing else mattered. You know, inside of this, and I'm going to read into this a little bit, but I've always said, you know, one of the things we need to do in America is prepare for persecution or prepare for these things because here's what we think that we would know about the church in Smyrna. These people were prepared to understand riches before it was taken away. Does that make sense? Like they had riches and they started this church. And you know how scripture tells us to understand how to be a steward and not an owner? Like that the reason that you give to the church or the reason that you are generous is because it helps take a hold, get the hold off of your stuff and remember that it's not yours, right? Like that's the whole idea. The whole idea of giving is to break the the tendency of greed in each one of our lives so that when affliction comes and all of your stuff goes away that you're not going to be like oh my gosh I lost everything you would just be like he was the giver and he's the taker who really cares right but I've always said you know one of the problems with Christianity American Christianity today what would you do if you lost all your stuff what would you do if all of a sudden you were poor What would you do if all of a sudden he decided to take away all of your stuff? Well, I'll tell you what I've seen people do. Blame God. Walk away from God. What did I do wrong? And I'm like, dude, he gave it to you. He took it away. It wasn't yours anyway. You know why you're struggling so much with it? It's because you missed the point. You weren't prepared. Like these people were prepared. And so then when when all of a sudden they didn't do business anymore... And all their stuff went away. They're like, I don't care. The greatest thing that I could ever have was never my stuff, but my relationship with my Savior and my Lord. And I just wonder if that's the case here. You know, I just wonder if inside of the church, if we've really prepared ourselves, that that the most important thing to you is Jesus. And I wonder, and this is what we're going to learn about, because what we see inside of the church in Smyrna is things happen to test where you're at in some certain areas of your life. And the church in Smyrna responded really well because when stuff was taken for them, they're like, we're still rich. But I wonder if money was taken away and I wonder if these things happened to you, would you still feel rich? Would you still feel joy? Would you still be able to be praising God in the midst of having nothing? You know what I mean? Like, because that's what he's trying to say. Testing reveals something about you. Right? Testing unveils some things about you. And I'm always saying, before the real testing comes, maybe you should put some in place. Right? Maybe you should start thinking about what you do with your money before it's all taken away. Maybe you should start thinking about generosity before the chance where you don't even have a chance to be generous because you have nothing. Right? Because it's going to prepare your heart to change this ownership mentality. So anyway, so he says, I know your afflictions, your poverty, yet you are rich. Then he goes on and he says, and I know... 
about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So he starts to open up some things, and we're going to see this develop here in a second. He starts to open up this idea that this isn't just another church. You know what I mean? Like, here's your church, and then here's the synagogue, right? And here's another Jews, and they're meeting over here, and they might disagree with you. You know what he starts to identify? So here's the church in Smyrna, and here's the church of Satan, and they're at odds. Here's the church of Jesus, and here's the church of Satan. And there, what he starts to bring to a reality is there are only two teams in this world, and you're on one of those teams. There is no neutral, right? Because these were Jewish people reading the Jewish Torah, Bible, Old Testament, and he's saying, you're Satan. You're a synagogue of Satan. Because if you're not on Jesus' team doing his work, whose work are you doing? You can say it. Satan. You don't get to be neutral. Everybody thinks, well, I'm not really on anybody's team. No, then you're on Satan's team. I know you don't want to hear it, but I'm just telling you, there is no neutrality in this. And he brings this because he didn't just say, here are some Jews and they don't agree with you or don't believe in you. And they're saying some slanderous things against you. No, he said, it is the synagogue of Satan where his work is being done. And you, as a Jew inside of that synagogue, are a part of that team advancing his work. You're not just existing. And I think it's really important that we understand this because listen to me. There are plenty of people that are gathering together in the name of God doing the work of Satan. I mean, isn't that what he was just saying? Was that too hard? But that's what he's saying, right? They were gathered in the name of who? God, right? They're Jews gathered in the name of God doing the work of Satan. Don't let it go past. And this is what he's trying to say about Revelation. Listen, you can be the part of a church that has me or don't, but if I'm not there, just so you know, it's not a neutral church without me, but it's a work against me. So there isn't this like, oh, there's just a bunch of other churches. No, listen, there's either Jesus is there and with it or Jesus is not. And it, and it picks it out to say there's these two teams and you need to decide which one of them you're on. So he opens up this window and we're going to see it goes into a little bit depth later on that we're going to get into some more. But it really opens up this awareness of like you have an enemy. Did you know that? There's an enemy. And it's not the Jews in the synagogue, but it's Satan using the Jews inside of the synagogue. And there's a real enemy in this world, and we're going to start looking into the spiritual realm, and you need to understand what it looks like. But he goes on before he gets into the depths of that. He says, don't be afraid. This is verse 10. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. So he puts this out there, and I think this is that precursor to where we're talking about, like, how do you be prepared for persecution before you're persecuted? You know, do you remember the... Um, story of when the ISIS took the Coptic Christians out on the beach in their orange jumpsuits and beheaded them. Do you remember that story? And these people were singing Christian hymns while they're getting their heads chopped off and everybody's sitting there looking like, what would I do? 
how would I respond? Or how do those people respond in a way that they can walk out there with their head held high? Because, you know, all these people had families. This wasn't just about them. This was about their wife, their kids, everybody being left behind, their moms, their dads. They're getting their heads chopped off. But yet they have joy in their singing in the midst of persecution and suffering. How did they ever get there? And we're thinking, I have no idea how you ever get that kind of faith. Well, he says, this is how you get this kind of faith, because you're not afraid to stand up for something, even the small things. When you draw a line in the sand right now today, we're going to figure out, do you have the faith to stand when a little bit of persecution comes? Because if you don't, always know and understand, you're never going to be able to experience any persecution, right? So if you stand for nothing, he can never test where you are. Okay, so he would say this, don't be afraid to stand for something. Don't be afraid to draw your line in the sand and say what you believe, right? Because if you believe in Jesus and you draw the line in the sand, like this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are going to be persecuted for those things and it's going to prepare you for what you're supposed to be doing or what's to come. Because here's what we know and we're going to learn here in just a second. Persecution always unveils or suffering always unveils something about your heart. Right? Right? When persecution and suffering happens, it unveils something. In fact, you're going to see it here in just a second. It tests something, right? And what's unveiled and what's revealed in the midst of persecution and testing gives you the opportunity to go one way or the other. So all he's trying to say is if you're trying to just stand in the back and live a comfortable life and make it so that everybody who agrees with you, you're missing the boat. You're just missing the boat. And I'm not asking you to argue about nothing. I'm asking you to stand for something that matters. You know what matters? Jesus. Stand up for it, right? Talk about it. You know, do what matters most when it comes to Jesus. So he tells us the way to, the way to move into that place is not to be afraid of suffering, but stand for something. Then he opens up this window into things that I don't think people want to talk about. He says, and I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Interesting, right? That he didn't say the Roman government. He didn't say the authorities of Smyrna. He didn't say the leaders inside of the synagogue. Who put him into jail? Who put him into jail? Satan. Satan put these people into jail. You know what he did? He opened up this window. You know, he doesn't do this very often, but he opened up a window that he wanted every Christian person to see. There is a war going on for your soul. There is a war going on for your children. There is a war going on for your wife. There is a war going on for your husband. There is a war going on for the relationships of people. And let me give you a glimpse of who your enemy is. Because it's not your husband. It's not your wife. It's not your kids. It's not your boss. It's not school teachers. It's not nurses. It's not political leaders. It's not any of those people. It's Satan. Fight the right enemy. Fight the right enemy. 
Because I'm telling you, he's giving you this glimpse into something that you need to walk away with saying, oh my gosh, I thought you were my enemy. I thought you were my enemy. But he gives you a glimpse that says, no, what your enemy is Satan, and he's on full-time work to destroy your marriage. He's on full-time work to destroy your children. He's at full-time work to get into your schools. He's at full-time work to destroy relationships that matter. And the question is, who are you going to fight, and how are you going to fight? And if you don't know who your enemy is, you don't know how to fight. Fight the right enemy. Because the glimpse that he gives us, because you know, this is really hard to think about. Because I want you to understand this, is that Satan is on a leash. Right? He doesn't get full reign. He does not get full reign. But, and I'm just telling you from a person that's went through a lot of loss and a lot of pain in their life, this was a really hard one to swallow. God allows certain things that are tragic and painful and persecuting and suffering to happen in my life. Because that's what he just said. Isn't that what he just said? I'm allowing Satan because he could stop Satan from putting him into jail. He could stop my wife from dying. He could stop people from being sick. He could stop people, right? God can do it. God can heal, God can change, God can do, but he doesn't all the time, right? Why? Why? Because there's a testing that needs to reveal something about you that only can be revealed in the midst of persecution and suffering. There are pieces of your heart that God needs to get to that he can't get to unless the suffering happens. And here's what each one of us need to know. And, I, and again, I know you don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. Hard for me to believe that the tragedies had to happen in my life for some things to be revealed. But I'm just telling you, some things that are revealed that would have never been revealed if my wife would have never died. I would have been blind to those things for the rest of my life. But some things were revealed about my heart, my soul, my relationship with my God that could have only happened. So the question is, what do you do with the testing? Because at the end of the day, we're going to see this in just a second. Because you know what the most important thing to Jesus is? It's not life or death. You know what the most important thing is? Faith. Your faith. How you respond to the testing, Right? How you respond to the enemy that's trying to destroy. How you respond when suffering and tragedy happens in your life. Because that test will do two things. It's going to reveal some things about your heart. Better to have them revealed now before it's too late. Don't walk away from the revealing. Don't walk away from the pain. Because something's getting revealed and he wants to do something in you that he, that he wants to happen before it's too late. Right? And you can look at this and you can be mad at him and you can go down all of these roads or you can just say, God, what do you want to reveal about my heart in the midst of this suffering? What do you need me to see? Right? Because here's the other thing that I know, and I know this from personal experience. When suffering happens in your, in your world, you run to something. Right? Just what happens. Persecution and suffering push us into areas 
right? What he's saying is, is that if you understand what's going on inside of this, you will be pushed towards me and your faith will grow. And the most important thing to him is not whether or not we do or don't have suffering or persecution in this world. The thing that he has is, is I have a job for you on this earth, right? And I need your faith to grow and I need you to enter into this war and I need you to be a part of this journey because I need soldiers in the midst of this fight. And it's going to take people that are willing to walk into a battleground that are willing to suffer that are willing to take the casualties of war because there's a bigger picture than me on this earth. There's a bigger picture of what I want on this earth. And I need people who are gonna stand in the gap and people who are gonna walk onto the battlefield that aren't worried about loss, that aren't worried about pain, that aren't worried about suffering. The only thing that they're worried about is faithful believers in Jesus Christ joining an army to change the world. And the church in Smyrna, he's saying, good job, team. You're my soldiers. You're my warriors. You stand firm in the midst of all of those things. So the worship team's going to come back up. And I want to end with this last part of Scripture. Because he gives us this like, okay, the church in Smyrna, you stood persecution and you went through all of these things. But something, we got, we got to wrap our mind around this, right? Like suffering and persecution has to have an end, right? It needs to come to something. And it needs to be a part of something. And so he ends it with this. He says, be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as a victor's crown. So he says, and again, Please hear me when I'm saying this because I'm, I'm also reading into this. This is not what scripture says. But we have to assume this. That there is going to be suffering and persecution and some people aren't going to be faithful and they're not going to get the victor's crown. The persecution and suffering in this world pushed them away, moved them away, took them off of the battlefield because the casualties and the suffering was too high. People walked away because they wanted comfort. Their heart was really revealed. Their faith really wasn't true and suffering revealed it. Because he says to the faithful in the midst of suffering, to those who will stay on the battlefield with all of the casualties, <laughs> great is your victory. Great is your victory. That's what he says, right? That be faithful, even to the point of death, and you, give, you will give life and you will have the victor's crown. Because he says in verse 11, listen, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. What he wants for his church is to not exist, but to be victorious. What he wants for his people inside of his church is not to stand on the sidelines, but get into the fight. What he wants from his church is people to know that when you're on the right team in this battle, you will be victorious for the one who has already won. And you got to make a decision. You're going to join the fight. You have way too many people. This is what I think we need to learn. Too many churches and too many people that aren't willing to get into the battle because the casualties is too high. Well, you know what the greatest casualty is? 
Here's the greatest casualty. Don't miss this. Because you can stand on the sidelines and you can try to stay comfortable and you're going to think you're staying out of the fray and the greatest casualty to your children or to you will happen, which is the greatest casualty in life. You will be separated from our God and our Savior for eternity in a place called hell. It's the greatest casualty that you could ever have. It's the one that you can never change. You see on this earth, you can have it all, God, seriously. I mean, whatever. If you want to take it all, you want to take the people that I love. You want to go down those roads, but you're not going to take me out of this game. I'm here to fight. Satan will not win. Not going to win. I'm going to stand for what matters most. And what matters most is that you and I are victorious. That your kids are victorious. And that they will understand what it means to stand in the fray in the midst of persecution. Because the only thing that matters in the end is Jesus, right? Not what we have on this earth. Not whether or not we do or don't suffer. What matters is Jesus. Will you stand so I can pray for you? So Lord, I just come to you today, Lord, knowing and understanding that it's difficult to live inside of a world where persecution happens. But Lord, I pray that today we stop running from it. Stop running from persecution. Stop running from pain. Draw a line in the sand and say, you know what? God, I am in this battle with you. I'm drawing the line in the sand. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what it means to my relationships. The line in the sand is what it is, and I will be faithful. And no amount of Satan's attacks and no amount of Satan's working in this, I already know he can't defeat me. I already know who is victorious. I already know what side to be on. And I'm going to stay on your side. I'm going to keep fighting this fight because you can take all that I have and even my own life, but you will never take the crown of life that you've given to each one of us. Heavenly Father, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.
That's what I want really more than anything. I want us to be a church that's willing to engage in the battle because I want to see victory. I don't want to exist. I don't want to just gather. Like I want to see victory. I want to see things happening that only can happen through the presence of God, that can only happen because we're fighting on his side. He already said, we will be victorious, not only as a church, but individually. I want to see us individually ask people understand that the world can take whatever take whatever but satan will not prevail ever god has won and i'm going to be on his side fighting on his team where we can be victorious for the only thing that matters is standing in his presence someday being welcomed in as a good and faithful servant so thanks everybody for being here this week thanks for joining us online and we'll see you guys again next week